welcome to The Burn-Up, where I discuss all things Agile with colleagues, clients, and industry leaders. We will be giving you an honest take on tools and techniques, we'll share our experiences, debunk myths, and hopefully provide valuable inspiration. I'm Marcel Bridge, digital consultant, product owner, and business analyst. I've worked in digital before this even had a name, and since have been quite a bit around the blog. I've seen the good and the bad, and this is my way of giving back to the industry. So sit back, relax, and settle in for this week's episode. Welcome back to the Burn Up. Join Dr. Michael Frick, author of the book Chinese Industry 4.0, Designing High-Tech Solutions Under the Cybersecurity Regime of the People's Republic of China, and I as we continue our exploration of the Chinese cybersecurity regime. Today, we'll be looking at censorship, or as it's officially known, online content management. Michael, welcome back. Last time when we spoke about the cybersecurity regime in China, we, you, you, you gave me an overview and we talked a little bit about what it is and what businesses can expect from it. And then you made this point that you have these seven subsections and it's worth to maybe talk about some of these in more detail And I think today you said that the best one to start with is the what's called online content management. You made this point that we in the West think of this maybe as censorship, um, because if I understand correctly, one can argue that everything else follows from that, and it sets the scene of the cybersecurity regime. So, yeah, do you just want to give us a little bit of an overview of, of what, the, what online content management is, what it means? Well, actually, I had a hard time to figure out how to start or with which uh, section I, I want to start, and I chose online content management or online information content management, as the Chinese say, because it's um, the, the origin of uh, the cybersecurity regime. And it's also uh, a part where you can see how some of these regulations actually work. Right. You know, they don't work as rule of law uh, regulations. They rather support a paternalistic centralized system uh, where you don't have an independent judiciary that really scrutinizes these uh, regulations. So it's not a, a rule of law system. It's more um, that you have high level government agencies that practice censorship in a certain way and you're actually supposed to emulate their approach. So that's more uh, how uh, cybersecurity in that field works. But anyway, I had a hard time starting with this because I remember when I first told you that I'm into cybersecurity, yep. you asked me, um, well, isn't that all about patronizing uh, Chinese citizens? Isn't that all about, you know, censoring uh, and, and all of that? And, and it is definitely not. That's just a small part. It's a very important part, but mostly it's about smooth IT operations, making the economy more competitive, or maintaining um, sovereignty and cyberspace, uh, military power, mm -hmm. and... Um, Uh, those kind of things. It's not all about a censorship. It's an important part, but that's not the, the main issue. But anyway, I want to start with it. And there, before we start that, I think we have to talk about censorship and what it actually means. Yeah. I think, you know, what is censorship and what isn't is basically determined or, or lies in the eye of the beholder or the power holder, so to speak. You know, there's reasonable content management on the one hand, and then there's censorship with a very negative connotation on the other hand. Yeah. And I actually don't even want to make that distinction between content management and censorship. I just want these two terms to be regarded as one continuum. 
Mm -hmm. You know, one continuum with two extreme ends. And the one end is like the completely liberal attitude where anything is allowed on the internet and nothing would be taken down. And that's, of course, something that no one can support. Just imagine if I would have naked pictures of you and shared them with my two followers. <laughs> and from then it went viral. You would be very happy if there's some mechanism in place that um, would allow you to take that down from the internet. Yeah. And that also... For example, copyright infringements yes. is similar. There are a lot of reasons to censor or to do to do content management on the internet. On the other and then on the other end of this continuum is the other extreme, which is also only theoretical, where you have total um, informational control, which means that every bit of information that is exchanged would be stopped, evaluated, and then some agency, centralized agency, decides whether this will be passed on or not. Mm. And that's, of course, also impossible because you have atomized web discourse. You cannot, you know, you would have to switch off the internet to, to actually get rid of any critical comment. So these are the two theoretical endpoints of um, censorship. And every system, every uh, country is somewhere positioned on this continuum. And of course, China tends much more to this extreme end of uh, information control. And uh, Western uh, countries, they take a bit more liberal approach. And there are some indicators, you know, that support my argu argument here. First of all, China always scolds the West for being so liberal. They say they have a laissez-faire attitude when it comes to regulating online content. Uh, then you have the um, this concept of cyber sovereignty, which is supported by the Chinese government and promoted worldwide, which basically means that you build up the national borders that they have their representation in, in cyberspace as well, so that you have uh, sort of information customs, that you know what's coming in and that you know what is uh, going out. And China supports much more information control in these areas. There's also cryptography where there are more limitations in China. And of course, you have this whole regulatory regime, uh, you know, with um, agencies, with network managers, with uh, technologies um, that support this, this system of uh, information control. And uh, so there, there's a huge difference. And China is positioned on a completely different place on this uh, yeah, censorship or information content management continuum. And when you want to invest in China, you sort of have to respect their position on this continuum, you know, because you have to also engage in censorship. You have to, you know, we are all content creators yeah. um, for the companies that are there. For example, when you have an airline, you, you cannot um, name Taiwan as a country. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll get you know, you'll get in trouble. You might get bad uh, credit ratings. You might have Chinese online users starting a, a, f a flame war on your company. And yeah, you just have very negative consequences from that. So you sort of have to accept this as a rule and also engage in censorship. And here, for me, it's very important to make this transparent for companies. Yeah, If you want to do business there, you either comply or you leave. And if you want to stay in there, you have to, I mean, you first have to weigh the pros and cons of um, yeah, offering products there. You have to, you know, you have to be clear about where your products actually have touch points with this 
information control uh, regime, yeah, you know, yeah. whether you have, for example, recommendation algorithms, whether you have, a, whether you provide a platform where ideas and thoughts can be exchanged. And if you have that, then you have to decide, yeah, I either, either stay in the market or com and comply, or it, it just doesn't work with my vision statement. It doesn't work with my corporate values. So I just stay out of the market. And every company has to make that decision. But here I also have to tone it down. I mean, most companies, they don't really have a lot of products or they don't sell products there that have, you know, public opinion properties or, or social mobilization capabilities. And therefore, they do not really affect uh, or they don't have a big effect on, on China's online information content management regime. I mean, most of the companies that offer, for example, social media platforms, they are Chinese companies. Yes. They are not, um, you know, YouTube, uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook yeah. Wikipedia, whatever, you know, you name it, they all have their Chinese equivalent. Mm -hmm. And they are, of course, uh, censored. And uh, the less sensitive products and services, they can be offered by Western companies. So it's not always that big of a problem. But of course, when you're an airline, uh, you shouldn't uh, name Taiwan as a, as a, as a country. That's, that's for sure. You shouldn't criticize government uh, policies and things like that. And if you're all right with that, then you can uh, do business in China. The only thing that I would recommend not to do is comply halfway. You know, okay. I have examples for that. Um, I mean, if you don't only comply um, half of what you're required to do, you basically are burning money. So you have to make a decision there to either be in the market or not. It's interesting you say this because I was just thinking when you mentioned Facebook, I remember listening to a podcast where I think it was a woman who ran, I forgot how it's called, they have this body which is basically their guardian of their content management policy. And she told this story about what they call Nipplegate, where initially that were like, you know, women's breasts being shown. Then the question was, okay, so is that pornography or not, right? Is this art? In the early days, they didn't fully understand the complexity. So they were like, okay, if you can see nipples, can't show it on Facebook. Then suddenly these women who were running breastfeeding groups were complaining that they couldn't share photos and, 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 and content. And, and once they then, I think, allowed that content to happen, then people were abusing that kind of gap in the, in the rules to then kind of I think taking a little bit the piss, but then posting pornographic content that was, to, but under the banner of breastfeeding, right? And it's such a difficult thing to get this right because it, it's not, we, when you don't think about it, it feels it's black and white and everyone should be allowed to say whatever. But then, as you said, you know, you don't want everything to be said. It's just also not fair with libel, ownership of, as you said, content. So I think you're absolutely right that it is a continuum I think where a lot of us in the West struggle, but again, this might be a different cultural view, is that we think when it becomes ideological, that's when we struggle with this, right? But the, the thing I just mentioned about, you know, whether you should allow people to, to post pornography or not, that's ideology as well, really. That's cultural and historical. So it's really, really complicated. So I think the only thing you can do is, as you said, you look at the rules, you either comply or you don't, based on your organizational values, really. I think that's possibly the best you can do as a choice. I mean, here, the interesting thing is that um, whether or not something should be shown on the internet in the US is basically part of the internal policies of companies. 
So that's a completely different approach. And in, in China, it's more centralized and they also have these really vague regulations there that, uh, well, you just don't really know how these rules apply. And mostly it's, you know, it depends on how the perception is of something, you know, how viral something yeah. gets. So something that is actually not regarded as, you know, offensive at all can be very problematic if enough people interpret it in a certain way or yeah, if it really goes viral and a lot of people yeah, consume this, this kind of content. I can give you a really good example for that. There was a staged press conference at, in front of the uh, Great People's Hall in Beijing and there was one journalist and next to that journalist, another journalist, she um, asked a softball question to the uh, To, to one of the politicians. And um, that's, you know, typical for Chinese um, interviews. They're usually staged and they are there to, you know, to support their argument. Right. They're not there. They, they don't come there to, to ask critical questions. So there was one uh, journalist uh, who asked one of these softball questions and another journalist next to her, she just rolled her eyes. Her facial expression went viral. Wow. So this facial expression was used to criticize these uh, staged press conferences. She lost her accreditation and wow. she was censored from the internet. Her name was censored. And, you know, this also shows not only how difficult it is to de define something that should be censored, it's also the dynamics are also really extreme. You know, you have to react within hours and to try to get that content off the internet. And of course, this cannot be rule-based in, in that sense. You need to have some centralized agency that says this was not okay. And now you all follow up and um, uh, parrot our line of uh, yeah, how we interpret this, this uh, incident. And then you also have to uh, follow us in, in censoring this incident. I want to understand a little bit more um, around who actually makes those rules around what's right to say, what's not right to say, what's uh, in the interest of national security, what it means to purify language, etc. Well, it, I mean, there are a lot of agencies involved in this. You know, there are, this affects agencies that are dealing with, uh, for example, education, you know, what can be in a school book. I mean, one of the most powerful agencies in that field is the publicity department of the Communist Party of China. Okay. Uh, it's also called propaganda department, which is not even a government institution. For example, they set the guidelines on how to interpret history and, uh, and uh, they also give their comments on current events and they mm -hmm. publish articles in the um, well-known um, Chinese uh, newspapers and so on. And so they sort of set the guidelines through, through that. But for example, when you talk about taking down uh, copyright infringements uh, issues, probably the Copyright Administration is more involved in that. So it always depends on what are you talking about. And then there are more powerful institutions and less powerful institutions. And then there are also these incidents with these journalists, for example, where you have to react very fast and nobody really knows yeah, what's the right path uh, to take. I mean, usually it starts then with uh, technological based censorship. You know, you have Yeah, they have this firewall where um, certain uh, text is just uh, deleted from, from the internet by inserting packages into the, the, the Chinese internet that uh, sort of cut off these conversations that are con concerned or, or that kind of information exchange that is concerned with that particular issue that should be censored. So that's a very... I think what you just described as organic mm -hmm. fits very well. And it also always depends on, on you know, what 
issue you're talking about is more copyright infringement or, or is it more something that's concerned with uh, history? And then you have these institutions are going to start uh, reacting. But, you know, in detail, how this works, we, we don't really know. There are no official blacklists right. or something that you can review and then you know oh, that uh, needs to be censored. I mean, you just have very vague uh, guidelines and you basically are required as a company to ask yourself, you know, in that situation, what would I do if I were a censor? You know, what should be censored? Okay. So you have to make an, an educated guess how you should behave in this particular moment. And if you screw up, you know, you might get fined, you might get uh, your business license revoked or something like that. So so just not having a rule in place that fits that situation or not having a, a decision made already for you on a higher level does not keep you from uh, being punished if you screw up. You mentioned what's sometimes called the Great Firewall of China. And I think also in your book, you say, while it may be, if I understand correctly, started at the beginning when they quite early on said we only want vetted content to be allowed into the country um, and to a degree out of the country, you make your point in the book that the firewall isn't the only thing that enforces censorship. Censorship gets decentralized and put onto the different content owners, content providers, and it's everyone's responsibility. But that firewall, can you talk a little bit more about, is there a single government-run internet service provider that controls the pipe through which the data comes in? And do they control the rules? And how transparent is that? Or how does this work? Well, I mean, the firewall is there to, or the Great Firewall is there to censor content that is exchanged within the country and also content that crosses the border, so mm -hmm, to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, there are three international gateways where all the content has to flow through. And there, I mean, you know, that's not an official description. That's just uh, how you assume that, that this uh, censorship uh, happens. And there are good reasons to assume that it happens that way. They have like mirror routers. These are sort of an, an on-path uh, firewalls that just wiretap off to the side what makes it through uh, first-tier network nodes and international gateways. And altogether, there are 14 yeah, first-tier network nodes where all the traffic within China uh, flows through. And uh, right. there you can just monitor what is happening on the internet. But here I also have to say, it's very likely that all major economies actually monitor the terabits of data that are flowing through their, their backbones. That's nothing that is, I would say, China-specific. Mm -hmm. What is China-specific is more the, the massive interference that results from that uh, monitoring. Right. And this interference is not only technological based interference also relies on, as you just mentioned, decentralization of censorship, uh, self-censorship that is required from mm -hmm. platform uh, providers, from platform users and from content creators. And it's also based on, you know, ownership structures. There are not many social media platforms in, in China that are uh, managed from, from the West or by Western companies. Actually, LinkedIn has been one of the last bigger ones that just pulled out of China. Um, they've just uh, announced that, so uh -huh. probably because censorship is uh, too demanding or maybe personal information protection is too, too demanding, you don't really know why they um, are uh, have decided to withdraw from China. So the, these ownership structures, they also support uh, censorship or online information content management. Then it's also the education system, you know, how you are educated also. Um, influences how you perceive information and what kind of uh, information you pass on. Yes. So it's a very complex uh, structure that in involves a lot of uh, uh, stakeholders.
is there any guidance you can give to organizations who are operating in China or want to operate in China? How do you even get started with this topic? Well, first of all, I mean, you have to identify the interdependencies between China's um, information content uh, management regime and your products, you know, to have uh, recommendation right. algorithms, to offer a platform uh, where communication is possible. So first you have to identify these independencies and then weigh the pros and cons of being in the market at all. And um, well, if you if you if there's some uh, friction point there with this information content uh, management regime, you can decide to buy cybersecurity compliance solutions from the big uh, Chinese tech behemoths. You know they usually uh, have um, they offer um, content management compliance packages. You know that basically you know that involves um, for example keeping activity logs. Uh, real name registration, um, they help you to filter out text, images, videos, and live streams, vulnerability uh, detection, uh. and so on. So you can do that, or if you want to self-censor, you know, mm -hmm. and not uh, use the, the services of experienced um, companies there, then, I mean, then it's a lot more tricky. Uh, there's been a very famous hearing in uh, in front of U.S. lawmakers in on Capitol Hill, and the people questioned were the were high representatives of Yahoo, um, Google, and uh, Cisco and uh, Microsoft, and they were basically asked, you know, what are you doing in China? Are you contributing to a, um, an internet of suppression or an internet of that supports freedom? And in doing that questioning, which is a really harsh, uh, was a very harsh questioning. Um, they basically said that they try to learn how to censor. You know, they didn't have any guidelines. They tried to find their own best censoring practices. They uh, made searches from within the country and from outside uh, China and tried to figure out, you know, what keywords should be blacklisted. And uh, so they kind of learned um, uh, how, how to censor. So that's the, the grim reality of... Uh, of engaging in, in that kind of uh, business. I mean, it's not that you just have to tolerate, you know, uh, the Chinese values regarding censorship, online information, content management. You actually, as a company, if you engage in something like this, you have to adopt these values. Yeah. You know, you have to make them your own. You have to sort of become part of that. That's what has driven a lot of search engine providers like Google out of the market, at least regarding the search engines. I mean... Yeah, uh, Alphabet company is still very active in China. They just mm -hmm. have uh, gotten rid of their search engine. And for the bigger players, especially the, the Chinese players like Weibo and, and those guys, are they in close contact with the officials? Is, is there a dialogue going on where maybe someone's like, look, we're going ideologically in this direction. Maybe you want to maybe look at that. I think it's always a, a good idea to keep co close contact to regulatory agencies in that field and to keep up communication there. But in the end, you know, when you look at the the software they use, they usually have their own blacklists and um, you really don't know where these keywords come from. I mean, there's some overlap uh, regarding, you know, the three T's, Taiwan, Tibet Independence and Tiananmen Square. Right. But apart from that, there's actually very little overlap. Yeah. I mean, they all censor in their own way and uh, 
there's no uh, detailed line that you could follow. You kind of have to get creative yourself. For example, there's one company, it's called Billy. It's a video sharing platform. And um, for example, they require etiquette tests before they allow you to access interactive uh, functions. That's a way, way to go. So you can basically use your creativity to censor as best that you can. There's no guidance. I mean, they purposely give you very vague guidelines. They basically just tell you these are areas where you have to be careful, you know, sexual innuendo, for example, or, or criticizing um, politicians or government policies or the unity of the nation or whatever. And mm -hmm. these are sensitive topics. And um, so you better look what we are doing in these areas and, and copy that. And if we haven't uh, made any decision there, then anticipate our decision. And if uh, even that's hard to do, then, you know, just just don't touch upon these uh, topics until we've given you uh, more more detailed uh, guidelines. And there's no chain of command from one centralized institution that would tell you how to create these best censorship practices. So when we talk about censorship, I get the feeling there is two types of censorship. There is this manual proactive censorship where you as an organization, you make certain decisions. But then there's also, I would assume, technical censorship. Can you just talk a little bit more maybe about the two facets and explain maybe especially on technical? Yeah, using techniques like DNS uh, spoofing or waging attacks on certain tar targets like GitHub. You know, that's also a kind of censorship by just, you know, taking yeah. that platform offline by DNS amplification attack or something like that. And then there's also deep packet inspection. And that's probably the most interesting way of censorship because it's the most unobtrusive way. You know, you can just say, there's this one picture that we don't want to be shown, like for example, the tank man on the yeah. Tiananmen Square. And then you can create an algorithm that identifies that picture. And then this picture is uh, removed and the rest of the information flow uh, continues uh, as usual. And that's, of course, the most sophisticated way of uh, censoring and less draconian than, for example, blocking the Washington Post or, or the, the New York Times. And what is really interesting here is that You know, when you use certain keywords that are blacklisted, you sort of become aware that these uh, keywords are blacklisted. And then the Chinese language allows you a lot of creativity to use different words, to circumvent that by uh, creativity in terms of uh, how you express yourself. And uh, I think that's interesting that these software-based uh, censorship um, techniques can often be circumvented by writing in a more creative way. And I think that's also an important part of censorship, that it demands more creativity from people that actually want to, yeah, to talk about something that uh, shouldn't be talked about. Is there a lot of natural language processing research going on then in China? Because I could imagine that you could build up algorithms that understand the nuances and then kind of learn, you know, if you, if you create an internet meme that that algorithm is like, ah, okay, that meme is clearly something that shouldn't be talked about. And is there a lot of stuff going on there? It's like an, an arms race. You know, you always, uh, the sensors are improving and those who want to circumvent censorship are also improving their game. So this is a constant race that is uh, going on there. I mean, yeah. deep packet inspection can also be used to like identify the kind of circumvention tool that you're using. For example, what kind of... Uh, 
VPN you're uh, using, or this is not only, of course, a, a race based on on how you use language. It's also a race based on what uh, technology you use. But here, there's an interesting thing. I mean, how many Chinese are actually trying to circumvent a censorship? How important is that? That's, I think, an, an interesting question. Yes. And the answer is very simple. We, of course, don't know. I mean, you cannot you know, go to a Chinese household and ask, hey, do you use censorship evasion? But there's been a, yes. a research in that field, and this that came up with like a number of like 2% or so on. So it's not that big of a concern. I mean, most... Chinese are not that worried about yeah, how confined their their cyberspace is. You know, they they have you know, all the services they need are, are there, and usually they are unconcerned and unaffected by by their part of the internet being you know different than the the internet in the in the rest of the world. Why do you think that is? Is that because some of us in the West, I guess, have a very broad sense of of freedom, and we just even if it doesn't affect us, just out of principle, we want theoretically everything to be available, right? But if you're really honest, there is a lot of countries where there is censorship going on. And in many of those, on a day-to-day -day basis, it does not really affect the population, you as an individual. I mean, there are countries where this is very different as well. But, you know, unless you are maybe a very small minority or you're really interested in the principle of it, Quite frequently, it doesn't affect you that much. I'm not saying it makes it right, but I wonder, is that part in China that people are just like, look, it, it just doesn't affect me that much? Or is it more, is it far deeper, more underlying that they also agree with some of those things? I mean, that's definitely the case. I mean, a lot of uh, Chinese, also so the ones that uh, I talk to or I, um, on a regular basis, they think that the um, self-censorship is something that they should do. Right. It's a good thing. Not everything should be on the internet. Yes. Yeah. They have a very restrictive approach regarding what should be on the internet, especially when it comes to pornography. That's uh, yeah. a very... Uh, it's always the thing. <laughs> uh, it's a very... And these uh, campaigns, actually. I mean, we, we haven't talked much about enforcement yet. Usually these uh, cleanup, internet cleanup campaigns are explicitly focusing on uh, yeah, pornographic uh, content. That's why we are doing it. And so if everybody has to agree because no one's going to say, well, I'm really uh, sad that that type of content is not available anymore. But the thing here is that actually it's fairly easy to access that kind of content in, in China. I think, you know, what is important here is what would drive you to actually install a VPN? Is it to, you know, to criticize the government or is it to to, I don't know, uh, contact your friends on Facebook, which is not available, or is it to access pornography? So I think if the, the Chinese would actually take a very restrictive stance there, maybe the amount of uh, VPNs, unlicensed VPNs used in, in China would, would increase drastically, you know, because that's maybe something, I'm just talking about the motivation, yeah. you know, what motivation do people have to circumvent uh, censorship? And of course, there are no studies regarding this, but there are no studies focusing on this uh, subject. But, you know, the thing is, if you allow or if you motivate your people to get censorship circumvention tools to access, for example, pornography, then they can use these same tools to access unsanctioned information uh, when there's, for example, a, an event of great public interest happening. 
you know, for example, right. in, in the explosion at the there was a big explosion in at the port of uh, Tianjin a couple of years ago, and uh, of course the censorship apparatus tries to suppress a lot of views on, on what actually happened there, and then they could use the same tools to actually access unapproved information about these subjects. There are probably many things that motivate you to avoid censorship, but once you are sophisticated in avoiding censorship, you can use that for all kinds of purposes. So I think the government doesn't have that big of an incentive to actually purify the internet from, for example, pornography, because that would give a lot of Chinese a lot of incentive to actually install a circumvention <laughs> tool. So, and that's the phenomenon. And, you know, I'm not talking about this from, from a, a purely Western perspective. This is something that is discussed in Chinese newspapers. You know, as soon as you are too, mm, yeah, as soon as you're putting the lid on pornography, you're sort of uh, moving uh, exchanges of information or of data in that area to less visible online spaces. That is something that can't be in the interest of the censors. Censoring is a very, very complex issue. Do you want to talk a little bit more about enforcement? You just mentioned that, which I thought was interesting. It's usually uh, enforced uh, through uh, campaigns. Then you have what is sort of called the Internet Police. These are the Ministry of Public Security. They have uh, local uh, departments uh, that are specialized on cybersecurity. Of course, they do not only they are not only concerned with uh, censorship, but people that might knock on your door if you do something uh, wrong there. But also there's enforcement through, for example, as I said before, through flocks of netizens, uh, online trolls that might uh, scold you, for example, for naming Taiwan as a country. Yes. There's not like one way of in, in enforcing this. I mean, there's there are a lot of agencies involved. Enforcement can be based on public out outrage or it can be based on a campaign. One of the main enforcement tools is actually the credit system. And you probably heard of that, the social credit system. Yeah. The social credit system is a fragmented system. For example, when airlines refer to Taiwan as a country, then they might get a bad score regarding their aviation credit points, which might result into more uh, reviews of their planes and so on, which might make operating in China a bit more difficult yeah, for them. Yeah. So that's um, also one, one way of enforcement. So there are many tools that uh, come into play. But in general, you know, it's not a really fine-tuned system. It's usually just, you know, uh, you've done something wrong and now there's um, retaliation for that. For example, in the case of Google, when they refuse to take down a, a link to their .com domain, which is, of course, not as censored as the .ch domain, mm -hmm. and when that happened, then the big uh, internet backbone providers, they just throttled the, the, the speed of Google. So sometimes censorship, uh, instead of using very draconian ways of censoring, they just impose kind of a tax on, on unapproved content, you know, make your life a bit harder. Right. Yeah. And I think we should also say maybe that you make this point in your book, and I think you alluded to it earlier. It's not a very, I don't know whether the word fair is the right word, approach in the sense, you know, if here you, so we had this case years ago where I was working with a German automotive company, and there were just the new regulations about CO2 emissions had come in. But we didn't really know at the time how to display CO2 emissions of the cars. So we designed something. And some things we thought we should do or we, or we were maybe asked to do, but we felt it was just not in the interest of the consumer. So we're like, well, 
the risk is relatively low. Let's just see what the competition does and see if someone gets sued, right? And then what you do in Europe is you wait till someone gets sued and you might get sued as well. But then you have this process where you can go in front of a court and you can argue your case. And there are some laws that regulate this and there's some, some degree of due process. It sounds to me like in China, it's not necessarily that clear, right? There is, you can't necessarily appeal these things. Appeal processes are, are in these regulations or in many regulations. But the fact is that once you're singled out for for something that you've done wrong, I mean, there's not much you can do about it. Right. If you're under the radar of, of such an agency, uh, you basically uh, have to comply with their demands. There's not much you can do about it. And there's not many court cases that uh, have been won in the past against uh, such uh, yeah. an agency. But, you know, here I also have to say the Chinese are very interested in keeping Western technology in the market. Yes. In, in many areas. So usually these agencies are often very supportive of, of what you do. There is not uh, that they are just waiting, you know, to make your life hard. Often they have very good and great incentives and they're really very willing to cooperate with you. So it doesn't always have to go in the most terrible uh, direction imaginable. The browser market is a very good example. Mm -hmm. I think the browser market is something that is really important for for national security because i mean i mean western browsers they usually use uh, fairly decent encryption you know the https encryption and they yeah. support that and that is of course something that undermines uh, censorship by the great uh, firewall and so on but still american companies dominate the, the browser market so even if something clearly goes against official government mm -hmm. uh, lines and can not really be in their interest if there's a strong need to keep these companies in the market and not you know let international relations deteriorate because just because you want to pull through your 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 censorship policies then these rules can be interpreted in a very flexible way you know it, depending on you know what field of activity uh, you're operating in you know, in some fields, it's very restrictive and in other fields, they are rather tolerant. So there's no even enforcement of these uh, regulations. In your book, you make this point that the Chinese seem to be very happy to have certain conflicting priorities as well. So, you know, on one hand, they want control. On the other hand, I think you make exactly that point in your book about bringing technology from outside of China into China. And if the two conflict, then they'll just do whatever feels right at that very moment and what, what the need, the greater need is. So the system doesn't have to be totally consistent, whereas I think a country like Germany would try to get everything consistent and in line. And that is not necessarily the way how China thinks about these things, which I think is very interesting. The tendency, of course, is they want to um, support indigenous innovation. They want to have their own products. And that, of course, also... Uh, supports their information content management regime uh, to rely on their on their own cryptography and so on. But even within their uh, system, without regarding the imports uh, or the the products provided by foreign companies, uh, you still have a lot of conflicting goals. Also, cryptography is uh, the best example here. On the one hand, you want to offer impregnable encryption to your customers so that they can't fall prey to criminal actors or, or competitors with yep. evil intentions and, and so on. On the other hand, you need to 
use cryptography that doesn't hide information, let's say, from, from government agencies. And, you know, to get like one cryptography standard that makes it possible to reach both of these goals in, in one product, that's, of course, very difficult. So these conflicts, they are there. And sometimes they say, oh, well, we have to support our companies so that they can offer good products that are competitive that are secure and so on. And sometimes they rather emphasize national security concerns. So basically you never know what's gonna happen in these areas and which goals are actually gonna be followed. But in general, you know, anything that jeopardizes the hold of or the grip on power of the communist party, that's something that they're gonna fiercely oppose. So that's always yes. the main goal. I mean, I would say the main goal is you know, preserving power and expanding power. And then after that comes uh, economic uh, development. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode. For further details, have a look at the show notes in your podcast player or on theburnup.com. Lean and Agile are interesting to you. You may also want to pop by my blog at thedigitalbusinessanalyst.com. I'm very interested in your feedback and ideas and happy to discuss interesting opportunities from consulting to coaching to getting involved in actual projects. For inquiries, please visit theburnup.com. This podcast is produced by Burnup Media Limited under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 4.0 license which means you can share it as long as you give credit that you cannot change it or make money of it. Until next time, thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.